Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. Today, I catch up with Cub member Mikey Taylor, the founder and CEO of advertising powerhouse, Lionize. Me and Mikey had a very entertaining conversation discussing how to do the most effective advertising and brand building. We discussed how you should build your brand and not just focus on acquisitions and how to market to an attitude, not just an audience. Mikey is one of the most passionate marketers uh, I've ever met and someone who's always helped me evolve Cubs brand over time. It was a brilliant conversation. I hope you enjoy the show. I almost laughed out loud when I read that your initial career path was to be a lawyer. <laughs> you are not what I imagine uh, as a lawyer. How did that come about? That is a good question. I don't really know. Like life just happened and before I knew it, I was at law school. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing you and your and I characters. Like, what? I was like, I was suddenly here. He's the quintessential yeah, yeah. admin yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. how I picture. But now that you think about it, it kind of would be like – You'd be a great barrister. They're the ones that that are in the court, aren't they? You'd be great to like sway the jury with some storytelling and things like that. Oh, actually, strangely enough, I think the skills are quite transferable. Mm. So, like a really good solicitor just builds a really good argument, um, and it's a one-on-one thing. Whereas, like a, a which is the same thing in admin. It's, it's just an admin, but you're trying to do it at scale. You're trying to persuade a lot of people to do something rather than a judge or a jury. Yeah. So, it's a quite transferable skill. It was weird. I, I mean, I just discovered that it wasn't for me because I like. Um, wearing, you know, ridiculous suits and clothes and drawing pictures on a board. And I found that as a lawyer, my job was to be the harbinger of doom and kind of figure out what is the worst that could happen in this situation and legislate for it. Whereas in advertising, we're kind of looking for what's the best that can happen and make the most of that story. Yeah, what are the positives? Yeah. And well, let's on that note, let's introduce, uh, let's introduce you correctly. Uh, Mikey, welcome to the show. You've, I mean, you you got involved with Cub many, probably in the in the first year is 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 when you got involved, and uh, you're currently uh, uh, the owner of Lion Eyes, which is. Uh, do, do you want to just take it away from here and introduce Lion Eyes? I, I, I can do the elevator pitch. Oh yeah, so Lion Eyes, we're a. a Advertising agency. Um, oh, that was, I could have done that myself. There, yeah. <laughs> so um, I suppose our point of difference, we've got three pillars to it. And to lionize actually means it's the opposite of to demonize. So it's, it means to treat someone else like a celebrity and make someone else famous, which is really what an advertising agency should do. Uh, it's a very odd word, but it kind of feels familiar and it's groovy. Um, and our point of difference really um, is that we've got three pillars. Um and one of those pillars is behavioural economics. So governments all over the world are employing behavioural economic units to nudge people to certain outcomes. I think, to my knowledge, we're one of only two agencies uh, within Australia that have invested in a behavioural economics units to make sure that our advertising is more effective. And that's really our whole premise. The other units, we've got a full-service creative offering, everything from making TV commercials, beautiful photo shoots outdoors, like what's the words and the language that we can use, what's, what are you going to visually and aesthetically, uh, and then a, a media department. And the media department is obviously all based upon being as measured as possible to deliver amazing results, great effective value uh, from your media acquisition and basically putting 
great creative in front of the right audience at the right price. And then there's data and analytics that fall off the back of that. So what are we achieving? What are the business outcomes? Uh, we have a full data team within the media offering as well. And uh, you guys are quite a big agency. Do you, you, are you mostly working with uh, larger brands and you know, kind of brands that people would know about? We tend to attract larger brands and the Nestle's and Iconics of the world and those sorts of things. But we work with plenty of um, – in fact, we work with – iconic pet circles since they've been startups. So, you know, we look after two of the country's three biggest uh, e-commerce businesses and we took them on since we were startups. So one of the things that we do now, which is really, really different, is we offer a media for equity model. So a lot of brands get to a sort of a a scale-up point where they've built the technology, particularly tech brands. Um, And actually, you get to this point in media where most smaller brands will do an awful lot of digital marketing because it's cheap, cost of entry is cheap. But actually you need to go broad reach if you really want to scale a consumer brand particularly and even B2B, like awareness is the precursor to great business success. Um, So we do have a media fund where effectively we take equity positions and we've taken equity positions in all sorts of companies uh, in exchange for media. We kind of agree a valuation point and then fund that certain level of media and that brings our media expertise and it means that... um, your media agency is effectively got some skin in the game uh, to make sure that you deliver the best possible results. That's cool. I've never yeah. heard of that before. And you know what? Like, you're, you're right. Everyone, everyone has access to digital uh, marketing and advertising. But when you go into the more, I guess you'd call it traditional or mass mm. uh, media, I don't know if it's more effective in terms of ROI or how that works. I would imagine it's not. But what it does do is it does elevate your brand because all of a sudden – your your um you know you, the way you're advertising is the way the biggest brands in the world are advertising and therefore it's kind of like announcing hey i, I i'm in that c- category or yeah. i can afford this type of marketing because we are such a good business well it's very interesting i mean it, uh, the reason why broad reach media still works is actually a behavioral reason um and it's because our brains are very very good at creating quite rational decisions subconsciously for you so if you see a massive great big outdoor billboard then we are quite good at knowing, wow, that's expensive. And your subconscious brain goes, oh, I know that's expensive. Uh, They must be a successful brand. They are a successful brand because lots of other people are buying them. If lots of other people are buying them, I can feel safe to buy them too. And so it's actually just quite a linear social pattern. It's social proof proof straight away. A social proof board. It's a a board of social. And the same thing for TV, same thing for radio, those broad reach medias in a way that, you know, a Facebook ad or a programmatic ad delivered to you just doesn't work in the same way because it's a very one-on-one communication. So it doesn't kind of have that same gravitas and social proof that, broad reach media's work. So when the Effies, um, I mean, I, I look a lot at the um, research from the Effies because, I mean, it's the only advertising awards that I actually think are worth winning. Most of them are for, you know, here's some nice pretty aesthetics and we all love to go to Cannes and sip rosé in France when we're allowed. But I do like that. That's not bad, but, you know, really that's for kind of advertising that's trendy or quite cool uh, as opposed to the Effies is just purely on business, like what actually moves the dial from a business perspective. So there's 50 years worth of research to show ad campaigns that have moved the dial from a business perspective. Uh, And the FEs, their results show really interestingly, you can look at their results and you can see the percentage of a campaign that's creative versus media um, and how many campaigns have used broad reach media and versus targeted medias. And invariably across the course of 50 years worth of research, broad reach 
um, campaigns will always deliver what they call um, significant business effects, 2.9 times more than highly targeted campaigns. So I think we've all gone down the rabbit hole as advertisers of going, oh, look, it's really interesting. I, I can hyper-target, I can hyper-target. But actually, for the most part, most of our client bases, you know, if you do that, you, you're often preaching to people who are already your buyers. And actually, most of our client bases are kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. And you've got to speak to that middle ground as much as possible. And the best way to do that is with broad reach media. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really like the idea. I've never thought of it as though... Uh, like a Facebook ad, there's no social proof because it's. I know it's coming to me. They've, they've targeted me or what I've clicked on. Whereas a billboard, a TV ad, or whatever it is, that is, you know, like I just, I, like I described it even before you said that. It's yeah. almost social proof in that. Okay, this this company is a good one. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. healthy. And yeah. do you think that even broad reach, uh, the broad reach media, the results from that uh, study, could that be because those companies are already bigger and that's why they, they've they've uh, that's why they've grown faster and perhaps why they were able to look, able to afford the, the, the mass media? Or yeah. do you think it, it doesn't have an Actually, effect? there's a really fascinating uh, piece of work done on advertising investment and its relation to your share of market. And there is it's almost creepily a linear relationship between your share of voice, in other words, how much money you spend in advertising, to your share of market. So John Philip Jones, a Harvard professor, looked at 50 years worth of data to go, as a rule, if you spend, for example, 10% of the share of voice, the total available data in uh, or, or spending in advertising in, let's say, the water category, generally speaking, you'll be 10% of the share of market as well. And so as that goes up, bigger brands can do what's called negative share of voice. So if you're 20% of the market, you can start spending less because you're already a big brand. So each dollar is actually working harder. Whereas smaller brands actually have to work harder and they need what's called excess share of voice if they're going to grow the needle. And his fascinating study, it basically shows that if you are, say for example, you're 5% of the water market, uh, generally speaking, just to maintain your that share of market, you'll need to spend 5% of the, the ad revenue. Um, but if you want to grow to 6%, you need six. You need a, a, an excess share of voice of 6 to hit 1. So to get 1% market share growth, you need excess share of voice of 6%. So you'd need to spend 11% of the ad market to grow that 1% share of market. And so what we, we use that within the agency as a, as a very good barometer to start getting from a you know, what's your ad budget to what's your investment to grow. So you can start going, okay, well, what does your business, like great brand strategy follows great business strategy. What's your business strategy? Where is your growth ambitions? How much of the share of market do you want? Now, if you're a water brand and you want to move from five to 6% market share, you should as a business know what that extra 1% is going to be worth to you from a revenue and profitability perspective. And you can work back. We have all the data of, um, so we buy all the data of what everybody spends in advertising across social, out of home TV. So we know what every water brand has spent on, um, you know, their, their ad mix. And therefore we can work out what you need to spend in an ad market to, to grow that extra 1%. And then it becomes a pure economic argument. Is it worth the investment to grow that extra percentage? Okay. And is there ever uh, any talk about, Oh, it's quite ineffective to have to spend 6% to get one or no, because you can see the figures. Is that 1% worth the dollars uh, um, spent? Is the 1% a greater return than 
then you're spending, well, yeah, it is. So, yeah, it is worth Well, actually, yeah, all the time there's a discussion where it's just not worth the investment in advertising to get that level of growth because the amount of revenue added, added, revenue added just doesn't stack up, yeah. But at least you're able to see it. But at least you're able to see it. So it's able to be an economic argument um, to go, this is what we need to do to maintain our position in market. To grow is not worth it at this time. Often it's because, uh, particularly in tech, you have a lot of um, – significant spending to get fast traction rather than profitability so then at that stage you go okay well if you if you're say say you're a tech platform in fintech and you're up against zero well we know that you know they are going on a massive growth trajectory they've got a whole heap of capital behind them so you're either going to have to go toe-to-toe with them to grow at that rate or um, basically it's going to impact your profitability Mm. and you can start working out from the numbers as opposed to I i find that um you know, the marketing industry as a whole has too many sort of, what's my budget, please, a little bit like Oliver Twist. How much money have I got to spend? As opposed to let's have an economic discussion about how much money you're going to need to spend to get your business outcomes. Yeah, and and you're also uh, much more than than an ad man, than, than, than a marketing expert. You're, you're also a great businessman in, in many senses because obviously you have had, uh, I mean, you, you've been the CEO and owner of, of, uh, uh, of a few very successful marketing or advertising agencies. Um, but also you've had, uh, you have other ventures uh, that you've been involved in. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. I mean, the same as the the media fund, the media fund was really um, developed to give us a really strong balance sheet with investments in companies that we're growing because we're using our expertise. But outside of it, obviously I have a creative team. Now, there's different parts of my business. Um, the, the media side of the business is trading and st- commodity really trading and it's trading and using data to trade the creative trading you mean buying media buying media selling media and working through and 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 trying to get a really great result for our clients the the creative side of our business is is no different in terms of its economic model to an accountancy practice or a law firm uh where you have a certain amount of hours in the day and you look to utilize them as much as possible so you want me to make you a tv commercial i think it's going to take 200 hours this is the cost per hour blah 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 what I've tried to do is where you have redundancy in there and, and, and spare capacity is have a bank of ideas from my think tank, um, stick them in the thought fridge, ready for the team to snack on. And basically we just create businesses where we get to be our own client and we can be as creative as possible. So uh, I started a frozen yogurt business, which um, I mean, it came about because my wife and I were sat at home eating Ben and Jerry's feeling really guilty, you know, the two spoons, uh, sort of feeling right and then you feel feel like the size of a small village after you've eaten it and i was like wouldn't it be great if you had something that tasted like this but wasn't so bad for you so we created foxy's uh, frozen yogurt we um, managed to get it into all the major supermarkets here we managed to get it into walmart in america had some of the strangest meetings in my life over um in uh God, I can't remember where it was. Why, for Walmart? For With Walmart, why, yeah. Why I, I had, it was just so bizarre because we're so um, – I think Aussies and Brits, if you, they seem really different until you stick an American in the room and then we're like, oh, actually, we're quite similar. Um, so it was just so interesting. I had to fly from Sydney to LA to somewhere in the Midwest and then drive about three and a half years to get to this place. And I sort of turned up at the meeting ready to be, hey, let's be best friends – and uh, the guy said, right, you've got 20 minutes. Tell me what you've got to tell me. And I was like, wow. It just so happened that um, Walmart had a really, really um, 
uh, interesting brand promise at the moment about health, at that particular time about healthier choices. So I just talked to him about, well, your brand promise to your consumers is healthier choices. And this is a healthier choice at a more affordable price for you. And before we knew it, we were listed in all the Walmarts across America and I, I exited that business. And then um, we did the same thing with smoothies company as well with a, a smoothie cubes company. So we started a few different bits and bobs off the side and, you know, had lots of really fun little um, projects off the side of it. But what I like about that is because you often hear people like start businesses that are completely different to what they're current. Like, for example, if I'm an advertising person, I'm going to, well, actually kind of, well, I'm going to go open a legal firm or I'm going to invest in this company that does developments and, you know, you don't know anything about it and all of a sudden, you know, their attention leaves their main business and they start, you know, kind of, uh, it all kind of falls over. Like diversification is never seems to be good, but what you kind of did was you just used exactly what you guys do, which is great marketing mm. and understanding the market, what what people need and that type of thing to create your own new businesses. But it wasn't like, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it diversifying in the sense because you were still leveraging your source of knowledge, you know, your yeah. expertise to, yeah. to, 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 to make these businesses a success. Well, I think that a lot of startups, I mean, my background was FMCG. Like I was after law, I went to PepsiCo London. I came to Australia to help with the launch of Nudie Juices and I did that for a bunch of years. And so we had a really successful brand. And what I just noticed across um, so many startups is that the capital investment for really good advertising is quite heavy. And it's actually a barrier. And so what people tend to do is they tend to kind of go on the sort of cheap side. And there's a big difference between creative and design. Design is I'm going to make something really pretty. Creative is I'm going to, I've got a really big core idea here that I'm going to resonate through all of the design. Um, and it's a big step. And the creative is worth paying for because that's what you get. That's where you get the J curve of growth if you've got really badass ideas that people just want to be part of. And, and so, sorry, just to clarify, the creative is kind of like – you know, the campaign slogan type stuff, like the concept, no? Or how would you, how would you describe the creative? Um, imagine Apple, if it was just lots of nice pictures, but without the, the feeling of think different and in everything we do, we challenge the status quo. Mm. So it's having those brand elements in place from the very, very offset, which don't come. I mean, some people, some businesses just have it from day one. A lot don't have those real kind of resonance from day one, which means that people have got a hook for the brand, which means that every ad dollar works harder. So when you're investing money in marketing, the amount of stuff I see where it's just, you know, some stock imagery with a, you know, a copy line, that sort of stuff, but without a real idea behind it, it never works as hard. It doesn't work as hard. Um, Like emotional advertising um, and something which piques the emotion invariably delivers and, and has been proven to deliver, you know, significantly better results. So the creative is, is kind of the emotive part of, yeah. of the but you, I mean, you need both though. Like when you actually start to get into ad, into ad land, there's a really interesting piece of work called The Long and the Short of It by Peter Field and Les Binet. Um, and they looked at the balance between brand building messages versus activation, which I would call salesy type messages. So brand building, this is what you need to feel about our brand versus sales. We've got a 20% off. We've got this, we've got this. And what's really interesting is if you only do brand building messages, invariably you get lots of people to fall in love, but nobody does anything. If you only do sales focused messages, you get a short term spike, but it actually has a long term impact upon profitability. Um, and so what their study looks at, which is 20 years worth of IPA data bank re, um, 
uh, information, which is the UK's data bank um, of marketing science. Um, and what they looked at was basically that you need to strike a really good balance and brands that strike the right balance between brand messaging and sales activation messaging have much more successful campaigns and much greater profitability. And actually as a loose rule of thumb, it changes for, for where what particular industry there are. And if you can, if you really want to geek out on the study, there's all the, here's all the different industries, but as a loose rule of thumb, about 60% of your messaging and your, your ads sort of spend in your marketing expenditures should sit into brand building and about 40% into activation type messaging buy stuff. Oh, from wow. Now. That's interesting. Mm. That's not, we're, Cub's not doing that at the moment. And I'd imagine a lot of people, aren't. I, I would imagine a lot of um, particularly small to medium sized businesses are focusing more on, uh, you call it the acquisition. Mm. It's kind of like a generate lead, generate lead. Yeah, buy, buy, buy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but so yeah. what you're saying is, that, or not what you're saying, you're referencing a study which is called what? So people can go look at it. Uh, the long and the short of it. The long and the short of it. Um, is that a book or a study? Uh, it's a it's a it's a white paper. It's cool. a study. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that research has shown on a whole, it's if you kind of brought in all the industries together, it's about 60, 40. So forty percent more on the you know. By now, by now, and sixty mm. percent is being voicing your brand. And what's really interesting is when they actually, um, as part of it, you start to look at okay, well, what are different industries doing, and it skews differently for where you are. So, for example, if you're in property, it skews more towards buy stuff from me now, which is kind of you would think, oh, you know, it would, it, it's kind of counterintuitive with um, online businesses invariably. You're an online business, so you tend to do an awful lot of buy stuff from me, buy stuff from me, buy stuff from me. But their data would show that actually the best balance is more like 70-30 into brand for online businesses is the most effective balance between brand and, um, and activity. Would you say that's because it's harder to trust an online business? Exactly. So you need to get it's hard, You need to earn the trust more. Got to earn the trust more, exactly. And that's where the behavioural economics comes in or the social proof and all those sorts of things and – uh, showing and not telling is a really, really valuable thing to do with online business. Showing, not telling. Yeah, Show, like, not tell, yeah. Um, uh, I, you're a big brain when it comes to, <laughs> to advertising and I've actually got a lot more like, like questions that I prepared that I wanted to ask you. Okay. But before I did, um, I, I re- you, you briefly mentioned it before and obviously everyone can tell you're from England. Um, but why don't you tell us a bit, a bit about you, your story, um, where you come from, how you got to Australia and, and how yeah, your okay. journey started. Um. My, my father, who I've got the most unbelievable level of respect for, uh, was a racing car driver. Um, that is very cool. Yeah, he's a badass. Um, and then off the back of that, he started his own business and all that sort of stuff. And we started off um, my kind of life um, quite humbly, actually. Um, and then his business just took off when I was about 13. And I think it was a really good balance for me because I got, I got, I was quite fortunate because I got to have a really kind of humble background. And then I got to go to a really posh school where everyone's, uh, you know, fathers were lords and ladies and all that sort of nonsense in England where they called me Pikey Mikey because I was the only one who didn't sound like this old chap. Um, and uh, so then I got an experience of what the other side of the fence was like. And I think that's why I ended up at law, uh, at law school because it was just that that's the path. You become an, a lawyer, an accountant or a doctor or, um, you know, go somewhere and do something different with the plebs. Um, so I got kind of like a nice grounding across, um, you know, being able to be a bit of a – I feel like a bit of a social chameleon. Uh, I then went into law. I realized it was not for me, worked for PepsiCo. And then I, I, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a couple of mad Australians who had 
decided that they were starting a juice brand in Australia. And uh, at the time within my portfolio at PepsiCo, one of the brands I had was a juice brand called Pete and Johnny's. And um, you were doing, Mark, advertising at Coke, yeah? Yeah, yeah, advertising at Pepsi, yeah. So, I mean, they, they started me off at Pepsi. Pepsi. Yeah, and, and actually it was a really interesting um, kind of grounding because I went from sort of, uh, you know, law firms and nice suits and all that sort of stuff. And actually PepsiCo UK, what they do, everyone has to understand the sales channel which I think is so important for marketers. Marketers who've just come out of uni and go, oh, I know all about marketing. Actually go and understand sales and then you'll understand how marketing is a facilitator to sales and really good marketing makes sales job easy. So my first gig with them, I was basically given an esky and told you're on the Londis account. Now Londis is like the grubbiest of grubby, dirty corner stores. Um, you're on the Londis account and you've got to go and convince all the Londis stores to stop selling, because uh, they're a franchise network, stop selling Coca-Cola and take on Pepsi. Now this is the middle of winter in England and I'm out just schlepping the streets in the snow and the wet and the rain with this pissing esky full of, full of uh, you know, Mountain Dew and uh, lemonade and Pepsi just meeting all these store owners. And it was a really good grounding. And then I got to, um, you know, go and do really fun things with PepsiCo. Like, um, it was actually, it was kind of like, it was the late nineties, early noughties and budget was never a problem because, um, there wasn't such an efficiency, uh, discussion within media. Like there was only really above the line media, like the, the, the ability to use programmatic and digital medias and all that sort of stuff wasn't really there. So, Everyone was happy to spend. Everyone was just everyone was happy to spend. It was really simple, and actually, marketing, it was really easy. Marketing, yeah, it was so simple. It was so simple. It's like here's here's. So we would work out the budgets by. Um, we wouldn't have the data for any of the share of voice calculations and like that. We would work out um, wh- this is what we expect to sell um, within a, a holding pattern. We'd spend five percent back on marketing. Within a growth pattern, we would spend ten percent back on marketing, and then that's what you've got to spend on marketing. And if you sell more brown fizzy liquid this month than you did last month good on you. And it was as simple as that. And it was really good. So we, you know, we got Britney Spears and we stuck her all around London and that was cool. And then she went mental and it was really cool. And <laughs> I sponsored the British Grand Prix cause I thought it would be awesome. I flew there in a helicopter. I was like, marketing's fab. <laughs> uh, and then I was, I was introduced to these uh, two Australians and they said, Hey, do you want to come to Australia and get involved in this journey and take over, uh, look after some of the bigger sales and trade marketing type stuff. And I just thought the challenge sounded really fun. I'd never been here. Um, so I landed with my little suitcase having sold my apartment and motorbike and all that sort of stuff. And I arrived in Australia, not really knowing anyone, um, and kind of set about trying to help build Nudie and kind of sell it into, you know, BPs and Coles and Woolworths and trying to market it through those channels and that sort of stuff. And I did that for a while. Well, and so how old were you when you arrived? I must've been 28. Wow. And, and, and so the, and the two Australians that, um, that I guess started Nudie, they, they just happened to be in England at the time or how did you it guys was actually, actually it was ext- it was one of those weird sliding doors moments right so i'd been out um one of the things i used to love doing with my old man he, he's still um he's a he's a clown and he still um rides and races motorbikes right and we used to go out to the isle of man every year and do mad sunday which is it's just this crazy um motorcycle race and i was on a ferry back from the motorcycle race and my phone rang and it was this sort of unknown number and it's back in the days big Nokia thing, ding, 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 like awful. Um, and I was like, well, I just happened to be doing nothing. So I, I answered this unknown number, which I would never normally do. And it was this girl, Sally, whose brother I'd been to university with. And Sally had been working at a cafe, met these nudie guys, said, oh, you need to speak to Mikey, had called her brother who'd called me. It was the weirdest sliding doors moment. And the next thing I know, 
I chatted to these guys and then I'm on a plane. To Australia? To Australia, yeah. Jeez. And then here I am, yeah. And how long did it take? What made you, were you always, did you always want to have your own company or at what point did you say, okay, it's time I start my own thing? I never had any grand desire. Like I've never ever had this kind of huge vision of where my life should be. I, I, I have, I relentlessly pursue short term goals. Um, and so I'm like, Oh, I really want to do that. I really want to do that. And I find life is quite exciting when you don't have some big thing in the distance. So I never really had a plan to have my own agency. And in fact, it turned out, I I started my own agency because I left Nudie with a little bit of money and enough to kind of sit on the beach and do bugger all for a while. And, um, I had this, um, there was a a mate of mine at universe uh, at at nudie um called martin he was the nutter who used to write all the copy on the back you know all the funny stupid copy yeah Yeah, it's great and he used to love chess and we'd play walk past chess in the office so every time you walk past you had to make a move and he'd always destroy me it used to piss me right off um and and he quite arrogantly said well you will never beat me at chess because you play chess and i know and understand chess and if you ever beat me at chess I, i won't say what he offered me but it was outrageous that uh, if I ever beat him at chess. So I then basically, I mean, this is kind of a long way to come to why I started my own business, but I then spent the best part, because I'm fucking competitive, I best, best part of six months on the beach every day with a chess computer and a bunch of books playing against the chess computer until I could beat the bastard, right? And that's all I did for six months. <laughs> no <laughs> way. I guess you are super competitive because you, you're also like a – uh, what's the what's the type of athlete? The cro- CrossFit athlete, like yeah, com- yeah competitive I'm athlete, and everything. Yeah, so CrossFit, you're competitive at all things in geek. life. Oh, uh, yeah, I I I like the thrill of competition. Mm. Probably like comes it. from your dad, from your old man. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Yeah. I'm sure it does. So I spent basically six months learning chess, <laughs> and I was dating this this uh, this lovely girl called Rachel, who we were having an awesome time, and then she just had this one conversation with me. She said, um, "I'd like to introduce you to my parents, um, but." I really don't want to introduce them to you as the guy who sits on the beach and just plays chess all day. Do you think you might ever start or get a job or anything like that? And so, and so that's how I started my agency. I was like, oh, what do I know? I kind of know about advertising and marketing. So uh, agency seems, sounds like a good place to be. And, and that's actually, why you started. Yeah, and actually Sally, um, who had introduced me to Nudie, again gave me a, a lift. Oh, I should send her a bottle wine or something I know, she gave right. me a lift off because uh she was working at Bacardi at the time and, and so I started my advertising agency with Bacardi as my kind of foundation client um and then it, it's been kind of you know onwards and upwards from there Sally sounds like your puppet master she's yeah, really controlling the realization yeah. right. oh, it's all about Sally yeah and so did uh, starting your new agency work for your girlfriend's family or Oh, yeah, they were much happier than that, than, you know, the extremely tanned chess bum mm-hmm. uh, moniker that I had at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you must have really liked her. You've got to thank her because she, she kind of gave you the motivation. You know, I think a lot of young men gain motivation to take big life steps such as that from like uh, a woman in their life mm. or a love in their life. Yeah. Like that, 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 that certainly had a – there was a – similar play for myself in, in in that field. And I would imagine that would be quite common. Yeah, I, I, 
quite possibly is you know behind what well, they say behind every great man is a is an even greater woman mm-hmm. pushing him along and those sorts of things. I mean, Rachel certainly kind of um, has been an amazing supporter of everything I've done. She just never questions, or she's always there as like chief cheerleader. She's pretty amazing in that regard. Yeah. Is she, she's your wife now? Yeah, she's well, my, oh, my wife. Oh, you yeah, didn't yeah, mention yeah. that. Yeah, so yeah, it really, yeah. it yeah, really yeah. worked. It really, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. And so, uh, and you also. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you was in your many years uh, running advertising agencies, what's been the what's been the most challenging thing you've come across? Or what was the most challenging time in, in your career to date? Maybe minus COVID. I'm, I'm sick of talking about COVID anyway. Yeah. So other than COVID, what's been the most difficult thing that's happened to you? Um, well, I sold the agency to a UK publicly listed firm. This was the old agency. The old agency. Yep. And I would say that that was a really interesting journey for me. I thought at the time, and again, probably naively, wouldn't it be cool to be part of a PLC and have all this liquidity and all that sort of stuff? And what was really interesting for me is that um, we we moved from being um, like an, a, a really lovely, friendly advertising agency to um, much more motivated by profit than people and very hamstrung to the next quarter's results. And therefore there was, it's very difficult to talk about when you're, when you're a, a CEO of a PLC. Just to, ve- just to stop you there, PLC being publicly listed company. Yeah. Yep, publicly listed company. Yeah. So when, and when, you, when you're a CEO of, of a PLC, you are um, tied, your, your share price gets hammered if you, don't do exactly what you've said you're going to do. And and it's very difficult to discuss nuance, which is, hey, the client budget got moved, but it's going to expand here or, you know, we've had a bit of a lean quarter, but the reason is because of these these things which are going to set us really well for the future. You can put as much story around it as possible, but most uh, of the institutional investors, and certainly we had a lot of retail investors in our in our um, company, uh, in our public listed company, it was global, Um it's very hard to discuss that nuance. So you're very, very motivated by profit as opposed to people. And actually um, that resulted in, in terms of the most challenging time, we had a share price that started off at one uh, pound, went up to nine. So on paper, like Mrs. Taylor and Mr. Taylor were loving life on paper, but escrowed shares, of course. And then through a series of kind of only marginal misses and probably um, some some poor management and some bad revelations about various different acquisitions that the company had made and that sort of stuff. Went from nine euro back down to four, settled at four for a bit and then went down to one, settled there for a bit and then went down to 30 cents and then went down to 10 cents and ultimately delisted, um, which is what gave me the ability to actually buy that business back and then merge it in and deliver and, and merge with Aaron to create Lion Eyes. My God, that is a big mm. story. So you, you were like, yes, yeah. we're going to join this public listed company. We're going to have heaps of cash and we're going to be, be bigger than ever, do some of the best work possible. Yeah. You quickly realise that, well, being public is very different to being private and I'm assuming you much prefer the private. Oh, there's enough skeletons in my closet that it is best for my <laughs> <to> be private. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to be in that yeah, same yeah, boat. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Private it is. Yeah. But – but um, but you you actually had that feeling. I can't imagine that feeling actually because you would have had the yes, I've made the best decision ever. Look at the stock price rise. To oh my god, I've lost what I'm. You know, I've lost it basically, mm. and I have to start again, or in the sense, start again as far as buying the company back. Yeah, was that 
honestly, what was that emotional roller coaster like for you? And, think, and, yeah. and, and, and Rachel. I, well, uh, Rachie calls it the Mikey coaster because uh, <laughs> up and down. Um, and I think that the thing, like for me personally, I like I never feel good about um, the, the money's in our output. Like I, I really enjoyed the learning actually. So I look back and I go, I really enjoyed the learning. It was fascinating to be part of. Uh, what I didn't enjoy, I had partners in the old agency and I felt responsible for the deal, which didn't give them the exits and those sorts of things and those relationships fell to pieces because of it. And so I think the, the, while I don't regret the decision to sell into the PLC and I really enjoyed the learning, I do feel that, um, you know, losing some relationships and the amount of kind of angst that went along the way was a, was some really hard lessons to, to learn, you know? And so for you, that was the big cost. It was the relationship lost yeah, in yeah. the process. Yeah, I think just the emotional um, energy invested in those sorts of things because I get excitable and I love people um, and, um, you know, the emotional energy when there's turmoil is, is, is quite draining. So I found that really draining as much as I enjoyed the kind of learning experience and I learned, um, you know, I learned a lot about how people deal with stress. Uh, I learned a lot about how I deal with stress. So that was probably the most challenging. What bit. did you learn about stress? Um, I learned that, um, I learned that I'm reasonably philosophical about it. I learned that, uh, I'm good at putting on an external show and keeping the troops really well rallied. Um, so I learned that I handle it probably better than I had expected I would have handled it. But do you feel like, see what, what can happen to me sometimes is I, I can relate to you on that. Like I can, I'm always ready for battle. I, I, I never looks like I'm bad, but and I actually convince myself I don't. I don't know what stress feels like. I don't even feel it. But then, like it happened to me this week, it got to maybe it wasn't the feeling of stress, but it must be there, and eventually it catches you. Mm. And for me, at one point this week, it caught me, and I just felt like I was dying. Like it was just a tired feeling. It was like a, yeah, you know when you. you I guess, burnt out or, or whatever it is. Mm. Did, did that ever happen to you? Did, did you feel like by not addressing it, it was eating away a little bit or no? Look, I, th- I, I think I learned the value of investing in yourself through it. So yes. um, v- v- couldn't agree more. Cross, uh, whether it's CrossFit or um, sitting and reading or actually one of the things that I um, found really, really valuable for, for me was um, I would try and do something every day that would make me appreciate being in Australia. So we are so fortunate here. Like the more time I spend traveling around the world, we've unbelievably beautiful place to live, great positive people, amazing food. Um, so I would, uh, whether it was as simple as a walk on the beach or taking in a nice view, I would try and do something every day, which made me go, aha, this is why I'm here. Um, and, and that was quite gratitude. valuable. And, and yeah, exactly. And then, and then as well, like a diarizing that I'm offline when I'm, running or I'm doing CrossFit or I'm going on a bike ride or anything like that, like stick it in your diary. And I would always stick it in my diary. And I think that that is the most valuable thing I do. And sometimes I, I, and even now, sometimes I do it in the middle of the day, I'll stick an hour and a half in my diary and I'm going, you know what, I'm going to go around my motorbike around on the trails. But actually when you come back, you're so much more energized and refreshed having not had it on your brain the whole time, because as a business owner, there's this, your job's never done. There's no clock off. There's always an extra phone call you can make. There's always an extra book you can read. There's always, and, and you have to actually get comfortable with the fact that my job's never done. So I need to make sure that there is a, a sort of a barrier point. Yeah. For, I, for stuff outside I, of fully, that. I actually bought a motorbike to do that because when you're on a bike, this was years ago, I actually still have it. I've probably ridden it twice, but, but 
you, you probably, yeah, anyway. Um, but when you're on a bike, you, it, it's almost a feeling like this is sad to say, but when you drink a lot, because when you're on a bike, you're so co- conscious of everything that's around you. You, you, you try not to die essentially. So you're not thinking about anything else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes you just want your brain to stop and just to like have a break and you know, that a bike's a healthy, well, potentially healthy way to do that. But you know, I reckon a lot of people actually um, could also turn to alcohol. Mm. Too. Like I know I do that sometimes. If I hammer myself, it's just because I want to break. Like, mm. I, I don't need to think anymore. Like just let let me chill. Like, mm. and and so finding healthy. My point is maybe hi, finding healthy ways to distract the brain. Because yeah. my other thing I do, like you do CrossFit and riding, is boxing, which is fantastic because you're thinking and you're getting all your frustrations yeah. out having healthy ways to distract your mind from the stresses of what you do in your position mm. is probably an essential thing that everyone should be yeah. looking for. Yeah, well, we can all fall into um, – so on, on the other side of my family, my mother's a psychologist, right? So um, <laughs> That'd be so, very handy for you. So <laughs> can unpack a lot of issues, uh, more issues than Time Magazine, my friend. Um, but um, she's talked to me and, and there's a, a quite well-known um, – an understood term called cognitive collapse. And it's basically what happens is that we're so overstimulated every day. So from a behavioral perspective, we've evolved to have cortisol and it's a great hormone. It's a stress hormone and it fo- it narrows your focus. Love it. Um, however, we would use it when we were, when we were, you know, hunters and gatherers to go and chase something down or catch something. But literally we are in a state of high cortisol from wake up in the morning, smash a couple of coffees, cortisol, fight your way through the traffic, cortisol, uh, meeting, 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 cortisol, cortisol, another coffee, motivate cortisol, people. cortisol, motivate people. So you're basically in a state of high cortisol from let's say hopper six in the morning when you wake up and your brain starts going through to when you effectively stop at night. And the reason why like mind numbingly stupid shows like Love Island and Big Brother and all these things. They actually, why, why do people love that? It's because people are in a state of cognitive collapse where they really can't process that much more information. So you just need something like some dumb idiot stuff on the, like, so why, why is it that that's still, because we get all the media numbers. They, they rank well like those shows. And it's because everyone's in that same state. We've got social media things going, this going, this going. We're in a, we're in a constantly overstimulated state of cortisol. That's so interesting and probably so true. I've never yeah. thought about that. Or like sometimes I'll watch the same series or same movies or same episodes. I'll never watch new ones. I'll always watch the same. It's because I can put it on the background and I can just kind of like yeah. go to sleep. Yeah, literally or, or veg out. It gives your brain just a bit of downtime. Oh, that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. So your motorbike is, you're right, awesome. Um, however, there is a certain level of cortisol because the price of failure is quite high on a motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially in Australia because yeah. like in Europe, the – like the roads, people are very aware of the scooters and the bikes, and the Australia Australian drivers are not. It's 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 like I feel like it's a lot. Like you rarely look for a bike going past you, yeah. and and that's where the danger is. But but I'm actually trying to buy a Harley at the moment, but I can't because they're not getting any in, and all the secondhand ones got sold for for more expensive than the new ones yeah. because they can't get any in. So. I'll let you know how that goes. What do see, you that's a, that's what do a you cool, that's a cool brand. See, that's a brand that people have tattooed on themselves. And what's really interesting it's one about of my Harley, favorite brands. So I what's love really it. what's really interesting about Harley, and one of the reasons why we have the Behavioral Economics Unit is because, um, and, and this is a really important thing for everyone to think about, is to market to an attitude, not an audience. So I love 
that Harley's got a born to be wild attitude, right? And it doesn't matter whether you're in your 20s, 30s or 60s, it's the same attitude that you buy into. So you don't have to flip flop. Here's my messaging for the 60 year old market. Here's my messaging for females. Here's my, like they, they market to an attitude, which is so much more powerful than marketing to an audience. Can you talk more about that? So, so I, I love that. I love that concept. How does it talk us through how you create an attitude like, or discover an attitude? Yeah. I mean, Hey, look, so, um, our head of strategy is a guy called Dan Machen who, who helped Cub do our brand helped, yeah. which we'll mention. So of all yeah. the ad people I know and marketing people I've, I've met uh, through my time, believe me, the benefit of my job is that you, you know, everyone, uh, when it came time to do, uh, Cub's, um, I was calling it a rebrand, but you called it a, a facelift, an update. An evolution. An evolution, that's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, um, I came to you. I called you and, 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 and asked you to help me with that. And, I mean, I think we've got a fantastic result. And, and actually we'll mention that, that um, oh, I know we've had a fantastic result, but, but I'll, I'll mention that Cub needed it because we had grown up so much as a company. We had evolved ourselves and therefore we needed – to look different and, and talk yeah. different and, and, and give a more mature, um, I guess, face, like a, a appearance. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not just new – I'm starting a new company and need a brand. It's also, hey, my company is growing up. It's become more successful. It now represents a whole lot of different people and different demographics. It needs to represent them correctly. Mm. And, and, you know, so there's different stages through your company's life cycle that you actually have to look at – doing a brand update. Yeah. Anyways, I want everyone yeah. to know that, that I came to you. But but can you t- tell us about um, how you guys go through the process of creating an attitude? The attitude. Um, so, I mean, we find – so first, first and foremost, some, some research, desk research, uh, and then also research speaking to people, cust- uh, customers, uh, people that love you, people that don't love you, and why. Um, we work through all the barriers. So what are all the barriers and reasons why someone – wouldn't because sometimes there's something really springy in there. Uh, we work through all the enablers, all the reasons why somebody would buy from you. And then you get into the really creative bit, which is when you start looking at comparison brands and you can start comparing um, brands. And then once you know all the barriers, all the enablers and all the comparisons, it kind of sends you down quite a linear and logical path to going, this is my unique space. This is the attitude that spans my audience. Um, and a really good attitude that spans your audience will play into lots of different things. It will mean something significant to your customers. It will mean something significant to where we're going and what's happening in culture. So it's important to have cultural understanding as to where culture's going. Uh, and it will be important and stand out in category as well. So that's the kind of the linear process. Um, I mean, I make it sound very simple, but we have a cognitive neuroscientist running the show. So yeah. um, it's it's basically connecting those dots. And actually you have to, you can't, in my experience, it needs to be collaborative because a brand, getting that feeling right, because you feel it, right? When you got it right, you feel it. Getting that feeling right, you can't get that by giving a brief to an ad agency and then just leaving. Um, now, we have a creative department where you can just give the brief in and then you go, but actually you have to do the collaborative piece so that that is absolutely spot on and you know that attitude because then the design is just a reflection of the attitude that you're going for. And and that is what you did with us actually. We, we Our leadership team went into the, uh, into the boardroom or into your offices, which are really cool, 
And we actually sat there and we were, what are the reasons someone wouldn't join? What are the reasons someone wouldn't join from your guys' perspective as well uh, in terms of, you know, maybe you guys haven't thought about this. What are the reasons they do join? Mm -hmm. And we did find our space. But I actually thought it was a really cool exercise because for me it was like, oh, yeah, wow, here's a list of reasons someone wouldn't join Cub. And, you know, you very rarely sit there and think, why would someone not? Why, why I want to find, I want to find reasons why yeah. someone wouldn't. And when you find those reasons, you're like, okay, well, how can we solve those problems? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an amazingly logical and simple process, yeah. but but no one really done. No one has really done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet, like and it's that. actually a lot of good creative concepts come from answering a really good blocker. So you know, yeah, that, a blocker. That's what you'd yeah, call it. A reason a blocker. Not to a blocker. So, yeah, yeah. So it's a and and so and and I just want to get it right too. When you say you find a an attitude. Does that attitude need to be a? Does it need to be slightly different for different demographics, or is the attitude the thing that ties your demographics together? It's the thing that ties them all together. Yeah. For example, yeah. Cub represents the modern face of Australian business. We have your young, powerful business women, business women, all the way to your heads of financial, your more traditional heads of financial institutions. Mm. You know, and and so we need to find a common area for them. Yeah. And so our attitude would therefore be the thing that brings and, and everyone in between would brings everyone Correct. together. It's kind of like um, the difference between dating versus going and finding your perfect partner. You know, so brands who know who they are, you know, I, I mean, as an ad agency, we can slap you into a great suit and make any brand look amazing. And we can send you out to a bar and we'll probably get you laid but you probably won't find your perfect partner unless you know exactly who you are and therefore what the attitude that you have got is. And that's the difference really is, between brand and, and just plain advertising. Yeah, is that what your uh, brain psychologist, sci marketing scientist, uh, is that the way he describes no, it? No, I just, I, just, I just made it sexual. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to remember that. And He would probably and this, hate me. So yeah, no, but it's, <laughs> it's so true. I, I, any way you can relate anything to like uh, – in a sense, sex or dating, all that—it's it, always relatable because it, yeah. it's all the same thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Everything yeah. does have a relatability to that to that kind of part yeah. of your life. Exactly. Um, I want the next thing I want to ask you is is actually more relevant towards um, people starting businesses in marketing or that may have smaller agencies, but there are a lot of them out there. Marketing is an industry that is, has a heavy influx of of new entrants. Mm. What is advice you have to people going down that path in terms of starting your own agency or trying to break through the barrier to the, to the next realm? It's really interesting. There are inflection points within agencies. The, 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 the challenge that uh, any ad agency has is growing itself beyond its founders. And so it's really interesting that um, for me, I am not a, I'm not a process person. Right. And most people who start creative advertising agencies are not process people. However, um, to have really good processes and systems in place is what scales your agency beyond you, which means that your business has some value. So actually, even if you don't do it yourself, I mean, I paid someone else to put all the systems and processes in because I know I, I tried it myself and I was useless and so paid somebody else to do it. So I would say that that's really important. And the other thing to scale your business beyond you is to absolutely pump up the tires of your team, like pump, pump up the tires when you could, because otherwise the clients, you know, a, an advertiser. Oh, you mean make your team important to the client? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're, I'm, you're speaking I, to the head of I'm this. introducing him because he's great at this, that, and the other. Like don't, there's an awful lot of ego in marketing. Don't, don't try and hold on to it. Like 
grow the team and let the team do their best and grow the client confidence. Your job is to grow the client confidence in the team as opposed to the client confidence in you. And that's really hard for egocentric marketing people generally. Yes, but no, I actually, you just turned that whole, that you turned the answer into a very relevant topic, which is how to grow, uh, grow the business past yourself, past the founders. And, and that every business has that issue yeah. uh, in the sense, especially service-based businesses. Mm. And, and I think that's a fantastic advice. It is pump your team up. Make sure that your clients know that this person is a superstar. Mm-hmm. They're very important. You're speaking to, to someone very special. And in turn, it's only going to be beneficial to your team as well. Your team's going to be like, wow, Matt, I feel yeah. Woof, woof. See, yeah, see yeah. little shoulders like, going yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a badass. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Foss thinks I'm a badass. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic Yeah, because um, yeah, otherwise the, otherwise the – the, the business is you and the client relationship is you and it's all about you, and which you is have great, to work all the time. <laughs> but then you have to work all the time. Like I, I've, I've long thought a really good meeting, here's how to do a really good meeting. You turn up, be fabulous, and then leave with no homework. Great meeting. Uh, and you can't do that if you're going to all the meetings by yourself and taking on all the work. You have to take people with you and make sure that there's they're, they're there, built up, ready to take on all the work. And I want to uh, talk about building a perfect brand or – Let's say like uh, I'm a cub member and I've got a brand. How can I kind of do a self-analysis of my brand and try to find ways to improve it? Interesting. I mean, I, I think that there's um, – interesting. I mean, I, I think the, the understanding the, and having a really, really good set of guidelines for your brand and understanding how well they lived out is really important. I think that understanding share of search is really important as well. So very few brands look at their share of search, but it's a very, very good uh, leading indicator to understand where your share of market will be and whether or not you're going to grow. Explain share of search. So share of search. um, So in advertising land, I can tell you share of voice, right? So if you are spending a million dollars on advertising a year, what percentage of that and what's your share of voice as an overall category? For a lot of businesses, there isn't enough ad dollars in there to really understand what that is. So what you can look at instead is share of search, which is basically you look at a, um, you can go to, you can actually do the work yourself or you can go to an agency that will do it for you. But you get a um, 12 month rolling average for all of your key terms for how many searches that you have, um, and you can do it through Google Trends, how many searches that Cub versus YPO versus EO versus, and you can plot on a graph where every one and all your competitors share of search are. And you can see how you're performing as a brand, therefore, against your competition, because that's really the the barometer, you know? So how is it, how am I going as a brand? Well, you've got to have a look at your competitive set and go comparatively, where am I going? And what are you looking for exactly? I'm looking for share of search growth. So I'm looking for more people searching for me for these particular terms. So when people search for networking, I can see mo- most of them are going to CUP. Or when people Correct. search leadership community, most are going to CUP or entrepreneur community. Correct. Or whatever So you is. look at total searches, what's gone to you. There's a really good algorithm in Google Trends that actually plots it onto a little map for you. And then you can start seeing where you are from a share of search perspective versus your competition, which is a really, really cool way, particularly for B2B businesses, to start going where is my brand? The other way to do it is you can do brand research. So brand affinity studies, but you start getting into the realms of quite expensive 
territories, like for proper brand affinity. So, you know, for, for our clients, we recommend you look at a couple of things in quite serious ways, right? So marketing metrics, there's a lot of vanity metrics. What's my click-through rate? What's this? What's that? And I see so many of our um, clients get tied up in the wrong type of metrics that therefore don't deliver business results. Like I've got one, Such as? I've got one client that is absolutely obsessed because they're, they're, because on their board, they have an actuary. They are obsessive about cost per acquisition, right? So how many dollars did it cost me to get that customer? Which sounds like a really logical and rational way to look at your marketing expenditure. So I spent a million dollars. How many customers did I get? Therefore, how many, you know, how many, what's my cost per acquisition? However, the trouble with that is it encourages your agency to do too much of the sales activation and roll up and get you all the shitty customers who just want to deal. So I would think a better measure is what is the value of the customer that you have got. So you should really be looking not at the end of the campaign, but you should be looking in 12 months time and what's the cost to pay back. So if I've gained you, let's say 100,000 customers from a campaign and it's cost me $130 to get each of those customers, if they're really good quality customers, that will pay back in six months. If they're rubbish customers, they're all going to fall off and they're not going to pay back even if it's a $100 cost per acquisition. So they're cheaper to get, but they're not going to pay you back. So it's the wrong marketing metric. It's kind of like your <laughs> bad way to put it, but you're kind of purchasing a worse quality product yeah. in customer. Correct. You know I mean? yeah. and, so why would you do that? And, and that's, that's where customers go down that. So I, I think really, really good metrics to look at are um, brand affinity metrics and you can engage um, we don't do it ourselves but there's a great agency called black market research uh, that do a brilliant job of understanding what your brand awareness is and where you rank compared to your competitors and what does brand affinity mean and brand affinity so um how likely you're though if you look at a cohort of people how likely they are to choose your brand versus the other brand and that's a really really good leading metric and then sales is the other metric so you've got brand research and metrics that lead into that and then you've got brand affinity metrics now there's a there is so that's a a quite expensive way another one that i look at there's a really nice piece of software called lantana it's actually german software that looks at and it's just it gives you a dashboard of where your brand is sitting day to day and it does it through programmatic engines and i won't go into it that's for the bigger bigger companies that they're using well no lantana is actually um uh cheaper than going and doing it with the research house oh okay yeah so it's something good for everyone yeah it's really good for everyone to know it's worth it's worth you know it's not an expense it's not expensive you you know it's a SaaS model and it just gives you a lovely dashboard to say where my brand metrics are where's my brand awareness where's my brand consideration where's my brand affinity um, and then you can look at those things in collaboration with your sales figures not look at the vanity marketing metrics like um, you know cost per lead cost per acquisition they're, I mean they're important but they aren't everything and you can get down the wrong rabbit hole by looking at those things myopically as opposed to the more important leading indicators, which is how likely are people to choose my brand and then how much money have I made which at the end is, of the day. Yeah, yeah, which is which are the most, yeah, how strong is my brand? Yeah. How much money have we made? Yeah. And and I guess what you also just to track slightly back to when you were talking about, um, you know, rather than just focusing on cost per acquisition and potentially getting the low-hanging fruit or the, the less sticky or, you know, easier customers, mm. I guess – not as good quality. Um, it, it comes back to splitting that spending on mark, spending on brand building and spending on acquisition. So yeah. it comes back to that. Yeah, yeah you got, we, we do have to build the brand because you need a stronger brand affinity. Correct. And that's going to uh, ideally result in a stronger connection with uh, 
your customers, but also new customers who are now going to have a stronger connection with you. And a stronger connection with your brand means they're going to keep buying mm. from you, which means they're going to they're a higher value customer. Correct. It's, that's kind of the concept. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. They're gonna pay, they're gonna pay your, you know, it, it, is it worth $150 cost per acquisition to get a really good customer versus a hundred dollar cost per acquisition to get a rubbish one? And if you're only looking at, oh, well, this is this is a hundred dollar and that's the KPI that's given to the ad agency, then the ad agency is almost encouraged to just put out loads of you know, really grubby, programmatic, dirty, buy from me, buy from me, 20% off type stuff, as opposed to actually growing a brand, which will lead to long, and has been proven to lead to long-term profitability. But, but what's essential before you do that is you really need to understand your brand and yep. what you're communicating. Yeah, otherwise it's just some design out there and it's not going to work particularly hard. Like you can think it's brand messaging, but if it doesn't really have a resonance or any kind of emotive connection or any reason for being, then it's not any different. You might as well just put out more sales activation stuff. And, and obviously the best way to do that is obviously to have professional help. But as a founder, you'd go to the ad people and you'd say, hey, look, this is this is my brand. This mm. is what I, you know, this is stand for. What advice do you have to the owners of businesses or to their marketing head or to the founders in terms of, you know, how do you look at your brand and how do you find the attitude to, to share with the advertising agency or who it might be? What, what's something they can do? It's, you know what? It is, it's really interesting. But I, I think that just the process that I talked about, like what's all the blockers? Like a, it's actually a really cathartic experience to do it. What's all the reasons why someone wouldn't buy from you? What's all your enablers? And what's some comparison brands that you look at and you absolutely adore? If you, if you wrap those up and you've done all that work, it's actually quite a simple process to workshop. Let's get the emotive like brand manifesto together. Let's get you your, you know, create a dent in the universe type moment, which actually then informs all the creative off the back of it. And I think it is worthy. It's a worthy pursuit to get a, um, a decent set of guidelines in place because a brand, if a brand that's constantly flip-flopping, the whole point of advertising is we're fighting for mental availability, right? So, um, you know, if you, if you, if you bring it, bring it back to its core, what, we, what am I trying to achieve? I'm trying to have mental availability because that's the best precursor towards getting a sale. Like an, adverti an advertisement is not going to get you the sale, right? You still need the other P's of the marketing mix. I still need the product at the right price and all that sort of stuff. So advertising's job is to win you mental availability. I call it share of attention, right? You've got to win that share of attention. And you need to do that by just doing three things really well. Understanding your investment properly, because if you underinvest in your in your marketing and your brand, you actually do more damage than good. Uh, understanding your media mix properly and being in the right places at the right time, and then understanding your creative properly, having a really really solid brand idea that is going to be resonant in market, is resonant culturally, and is actually going to stand out when you do brand messaging. So you do win that mental availability, and you're not just constantly nudging people for that rational. Oh, if I go and buy from you, I can get twenty percent off today. Because that has been proven time and time again uh, in multiple studies. Um, Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow is a really interesting one because it goes into um, a great deal of effort. Um, the Ehrenberg Baptist Institute. That's worth, a book. Yeah. I've got that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And it looks at the impact of on long-term profitability of pricing dynamics. And brands that consistently discount always will have long-term profitability um, drops on the basis of it. So – you know, it's a very, very quick and easy way. So if, if, for example, and this is where there's so many problems in the marketing industry, like the average tenure of a decent CMO is about two and a half years at the moment. Now, if, you're, if you know you've got two and a half years in a job, 
and the board saying, I need sales figures, I need sales figures, what are you going to do? I'm going to do lots of discounts and I'm going to get lots of sales figures. But then you've just bought in all those crappy customers. So then <laughs> what's the long-term impact? So it's this wow. terribly cyclical problem um, that, uh, you know, unless you do actually do some proper brand thinking and you need some sophisticated um, you need sophisticated marketers on the client side who can communicate it internally, who will understand the dynamics of investment in brand. And then equally from marketers, I think marketers need to start talking business metrics more than marketing metrics. So at the moment, it's really interesting, you know, like we've got a, a, an interesting community. There's lots of ch the change happening in the media marketplace at the moment. Like the, the numbers are changing. There's all these sorts of things, different things changing. What marketers should be talking about now with their boards is not necessarily cost per acquisition it's not necessarily cost per lead it's it's not even necessarily um the brand piece it should be about share of market so if the whole market is down but your share of market is up when the whole market rises again then you're going to benefit from that so you should be fighting and you should be talking about the value of share of market and marketers need to start understanding the market as a whole, their place in it. And I think that too many of the marketers have got no idea about the market as a whole. Like we, we see clients all the time who know their numbers very well, but they don't know the whole market numbers. So how do you know how you're competing against the market? You know, a rising tide should float all ships. If, if for example, you're a quick service restaurant <clears throat> and you go, look at our numbers, aren't we amazing? We've grown 11% this year. And you go, yeah, but quick service restaurants as a whole have grown 16%. So actually you've done really badly. And actually you've, you've decreased by 5%. So unless you're looking at the market as a whole, which is what marketers need to do and talk about market dynamics as a whole, you're myopically focused on your own race, then you don't really know how you're going and you're actually not talking in real business terms that boards can kind of get, get involved and excited like by. You need to be looking at the whole chessboard and understand the field. Yeah. You know, to understand how you're going. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, can you just tell us quickly as well how um, uh, COVID has changed advertising budgets and, and perhaps consumers' attention? Yeah, I, I look, I think um, the current market conditions have changed a number of different things. I, I look at media as what people are doing, right? So people are listening to stuff, people are watching stuff, and people are out and about. So I don't really look like myopically at the channels, but listening to stuff is really interesting. So radio there's a lot of opportunity in the market because people think, oh, well, radio's changed. People aren't listening to the radio anymore. But actually... If you look at the dynamics of radio, you used to be able to set your watch by, you know, you've got drive time and people listen in the car in the mornings and then drive time in the afternoon. Now that's stopped, but radio listening throughout the day has actually increased by 11% as everyone's waiting for their updates every day. Podcasts have gone gangbusters and you can buy podcasts. Like uh, for many Cub members, great place to play. You can buy the audience, not the show with podcasts. So we can buy podcasts programmatically. So if I am targeting females 25 to 35 now we might have you know two females 25 to 35 um who, one who fits our demographic profile one who doesn't fit our demographic profile they might be listening to the same podcast in the same house but they'll be listening to different ads and we can target you based upon your um kind of audience profile and your likes and dislikes and your data profile podcasts have increased by 44 percent uh throughout this period so last month there was 52 million podcasts downloaded in australia that's a really big stat uh tv has increased so tv audiences have um increased mainly through broadcast video on demand so that's up 39 percent broadcast video on demand um yeah is that like netflix or what do you mean by TV? yeah so um 10 play uh nine now oh, okay those so so those kind of 
watch it on your own time time uh, services have grown so so actual uh, across the board um screens watching screens throughout this period has increased by 11 percent. great where has that come from actually all the networks whether it's seven nine they've all in, uh reported decreased viewership of their main channels but enormously increased viewership of things like uh, seven's coverage of the olympics for example was the biggest ever day of um live streaming in australia the, uh, the opening day of the olympics so I think that's really interesting to watch and, and to understand as well from from brands perspective. I love broadcast video on demand because you can feel like a big brand. You can get that social proof because you're in someone's house on their TV, but you can also geo-target it in a way that you can't with traditional TV buy. Um, and I think out of home is really interesting as well. So if you look at um, like media panels, um, the big loser has actually been transit. Like So public transport, media has dropped 52% on public transport and around major kind of big large format but at the same time the the audience numbers have increased for local based things so the the panels outside of Coles and Woolworths for example are in, invariably worth more money at the moment um, and there's actually opportunities in the media space because not everybody's looking at how the numbers and the dynamics are changing and there are therefore lots and lots of really really good deals in terms of like the the cost per thousand that you're going to pay and to, to get the attention yeah. So it's a very interesting space. I think it's fascinating at the moment. Mm. Like I just, I think, I think change is fascinating. So I, I think is, and, and I think in, in change there's opportunities. Always. There's always opportunities. Always. And I think it's up to the smart marketer to understand where are those opportunities and kind of play into them as best you can. And Mikey, to wrap up, I wanted to ask you um, uh, a few, a few book recommendations you have. Now you mentioned one, which was uh, How Brands Grow. Who's that author by? Uh, Byron Sharp. Yeah. Byron Sharp. Yeah, that's no, a, that's, that's a the one book. I have. I've read that and that's a fantastic book. That's a great book, yeah. What are some other uh, book recommendations um, you might have? Oh, look, I think um, – so for me, a really nice entry point into behavioural economics is The Choice Factory by Richard Shotton. It's a, um, there's, you know, he, he, he's done a really nice, I mean, there's ultimately you call them heuristics, sort of the, the predictably irrational uh, sort of unpredictable behaviours of humans. Uh, things like social proof, things like the Dunning-Kruger effect, all of those kind of like little strange quirks of human behavior that you can actually predict and play into as a marketer. And so he's done just a lovely book with 25 human behavioral biases and how we can use them as marketers, which I think is really fun and, and like a nice easy way to get into behavioral economics. If you love that, then go and read The Nudge Unit and all that sort of stuff and, you know, the that's that's good fun. The nudge unit's kind of a more in-depth behavioral economics. Book. Yeah, that's that's looking at um, there was uh, there was they called them the nudge unit. They were the team behind the Brexit campaign, um, and they were a team of behavior. I mean, there was there was the data guys because um, obviously you know you got a Cambridge Analytica yourself to get uh, to get yourself out of Europe. But the the real sort of genius behind it was the nudge unit, looking at behavioral economics and just little tiny quirks of human behavior, things like you know. If you put um, a measure of social proof so on, on electricity bills, for example, you'll start seeing now they can start printing for a price of a bit of ink, you'll start seeing 88% of people in your street pay their bill on time, right? Now, as humans, we don't want to be outside of the herd. So like that simple little quirk of human behavior increases compliance and payments on time by over 70%. Wow. And that's why behavioral economics is worth uh, investing in because tiny little quirks of human behavior can have massive business effects. And so the nudge unit goes into what they did for Brexit and how you can use that in marketing. Oh, that's cool. I'm yeah. going to get that. Yeah, yeah. So it's and proper geek out stuff. Yeah, full blown. And you've you've had some uh, 
I mean, you, you've had a, a lot of experiences at Cub. What are some of the uh, what are some of your favourite things about the club or success stories that have come from from, from your time as a member? Oh, we've got to hang out. Yeah, but that's definitely number one. That's number one. Yeah, everything from there. Um, oh, I think I've had I've I've met really interesting people. I've learnt a huge amount. Like you just learn so much from other people. I think actually probably my 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 fondest thing, strangely enough, is nothing to do with me. Uh, it was meeting Michelle and Kira from Ignite, and then getting my son. Uh, my my son loves acting. Um, and, um, he was doing like screen acting and stage acting and all this sort of stuff. And then we met them and then they put them, put him on their books to be one of their like kids, um, in their agency. And then he's been in a little movie and he's been in some commercials. How good and, is that? And yeah, so that like covers actually, it's, it's, it's amazing when it does something for you. It's even more amazing when it does something for your kids. So, yeah. I mean, that was, that's, that's a cool that's story. A lovely, yeah. They did a recent episode. They, they, they're amazing women. Yeah. And um, that's a really cool story. And uh, was I right to hear also that you um, potentially had found investment for a new venture or product that you're doing or something? Yeah, that's right. Like well, I was at one of the core sessions mm-hmm. and I was talking about one of the new ideas. Um, and then, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get, there was, there was a bunch of interest in it. And um, yeah, just got on incredibly well with one of the cub members and thought, hey, this would be really fun to do together. That's um, awesome. Yeah. I and love so, yeah, and so there, there is outside of the smoothies and the frozen yogurt, there is another thing which is on its way. Um, Which we'll save for the next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long old story, that one. <laughs> I love that. All right, Mikey. Um, uh, to the listeners, if you want to find out more about Mikey Taylor uh, or get in contact with Lionize, uh, go to cup.club forward slash podcast and find out everything you need there. Mikey, you are always a pleasure to speak to. And like like I said at the start, I came to you for Cubs uh, brand um, uh, evolution for a reason. And I think a lot of the listeners know those reasons now after listening to you speak uh, so passionately about um, about your craft, which is one thing that definitely translated. But uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That was fun. Awesome. See you guys. Hope you enjoyed the show.